Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. There are really some very big uh, political stories in the news today that I want to get to as quickly as possible. So let me introduce the panel and get our Monday first show of the week off to a big uh, start. Um, we're joined today by Patricia Murphy. You know, she's been our partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on the Friday show for quite a while, uh, but we've made a switch uh, Patricia is now going to be with us on Mondays, and we're very, very happy that she uh, will be. You know her as both a political reporter and uh, a columnist who uh, uh, writes the Insider column that appears on Wednesdays and Sundays in the paper. And she also oversees The Jolt, which you read every day on AJC.com. Good morning, uh, Patricia, on a Monday. Good morning, Bill. Yes. Doing Political Rewind, I feel like, is the best possible way to start anyone's week, and I would like to start my week this way. Especially, I learned so much from you and the other panelists that I feel like I'm going to get my head in the game early this week, and I'll do it through Uh, being on Political Rewind, so thank you. Yeah, flattery gets you absolutely (laughs) everywhere, Patricia. Renee Alegria is back with us. She's the CEO of Mundo Hispanico. And, and Renee, as we introduce you today, you are now part of a really interesting collaborative that's just formed. Give us a quick uh, description of what it is. And the reason it matters is because as we see the emergence of minority groups as bigger and bigger influences in the state of Georgia, what you're doing now is an example of that. Tell us about the media, ethnic media collaborative. Sure. No, first of all, thank you for having me, Bill. But the ethnic media collaborative uh, is a partnership between Mundo Hispanico, uh, the Atlanta Voice, and Janice Ware there, and uh, Lee Wong's Georgia Asian Times. And together, we're giving voice to what is the new face of Georgia, evolving demographics that establish uh, a, just a different point of view. We're actually launching uh, the new face of Georgia speaker series. And our first guest is Stacey Abrams this upcoming Thursday uh, in Gwinnett, which we will be live streaming on Mundo Hispanico, The Atlanta Voice, and, of course, Georgia Asian Times. Another outlet for us to learn more about the minority communities in the state and uh, your views on on the views on politics uh, here. So thank you for telling us about that, Renee. Karen Owen is back with us, University of West Georgia political science professor. Uh, You've known her for quite a while in that role. But you are now, Karen, a dean, interim dean of University College at University of West Georgia. Tell us, first of all, great to have you back. What is University College? Well, thank you so much, Bill, for having me. And yes, April 1st, I stepped into this role as interim dean. University College focuses on student success. So we have a lot of first-year programs, first- and second-year programs for our students. And then we have some academic programs, including the Department of Political Science and Criminology and Interdisciplinary Studies. 
Well, congratulations on your new role at the university. And Chuck Cook joins us. Chuck Cook is one of the top immigration attorneys in the country. I say that without fear of contradiction. Um, uh, he has uh, worked for, for many, many years uh, in, in a role helping undocumented uh, uh, immigrants to the country in terms of their journey through the, the uh, maze of immigration here. Um, uh, beyond that, he has worked in corporate America, helping uh, uh, businesses understand how they can deal with immigration. And Chuck, I think it's always good to have you because not only can you talk about immigration, but you're a pretty astute observer of politics as well. So thanks for being here, Chuck. It's just a joy once again to be with you, Bill. I learned so much by being on your show and listening to it every day on the radio on the way to work. All right, well, let's get right to it. Patricia, we had the first of a series of debates that will unfold this week between uh, David Perdue and Brian Kemp. Last night was on uh, WSB-TV, Channel 2 in North Georgia. Uh, Patricia, there were times when that debate, and, and I certainly want to give you a chance to characterize it, there were aspects of that debate that felt like a middle school food fight. Yes, I called it family counseling gone awry. Um, <laughs> a little bit like an episode of The Real Housewives, if anybody watches that. Um, it was just incredibly personal at times, and I will tell you that is genuine emotion. That is not manufactured outrage. These are two men who feel betrayed by each other, angry with each other, blame the others, the other one for their current difficulties <laughs> in politics. And so um, that really spilled out into the open last night in their first one-on-one -on -one debate. And unlike most debates where you typically hear, oh, your 60 seconds are up, time for your rebuttal, um, WSB let the two of them really go at each other for a full 24 minutes. There were one or two questions um, peppered in there. It was really a full 24 minutes about the 2020 elections. Whose fault is it that Republicans are here now? And which one of those two gentlemen bears the blame for both Donald Trump's anger and for the fact that David Perdue is not in the Senate? And was that election stolen? David Perdue started off right off the bat saying this election was rigged and stolen. Uh, Brian Kemp did his best to rebut that at every turn. Um, but that's what GOP voters care about right now. Yeah, let's, um, uh, Karen, let's listen to that, because uh, if there's a defining uh, theme for David Perdue in that debate, it was his very first statement. Karen, let's listen, and then you and the other panelists can weigh in. Let me be very clear tonight. The election in 2020 was rigged and stolen. All the madness we see from the Biden administration, two million illegals, rising gas prices, unbelievable inflation, the brink of war. All that started right here in Georgia when our governor caved and allowed radical Democrats to steal our election. Um, Karen, we'll get to what Brian Kemp's uh, opening statement was in just a minute. But first of all, we should say that, of course, the election wasn't stolen. There's no evidence that it was. There were three recounts of the vote. Um, but uh, a lot of what he said is uh, seconded by a commercial that the Purdue campaign now has on the air, blaming essentially Brian Kemp for many of the troubles in the world today. Yes, I think this is a candidate who is down in the polls, and he's trying to do everything he can to turn out a base that he needs to support him. And so he is definitely living in the 2020 election still and, you know, pushing that lie continuously so that those voters who feel that same concern and who are mad at Kemp will be out there turning out to vote for the May 24th primary. 
I think it also shows how much, you know, as Patricia said, there is just so much animosity between these two men. And it shows in this, like, twenty, the first 25 minutes, right, how divided Republicans are and that both candidates are speaking to that division instead of speaking to a unity, which really will play off for the Democrats, right? They're going to be able to feed into this and see exactly that the, the GOP is divided and that they have a different message going forward towards the general election. Renee? You know, sure. I, listen, I, that opening salvo of uh, the big lie just, uh, you know, really sealed the, the tone and rhetoric for the rest of, of the debate. I, I, I think it does show the, the division. The, 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 I mean, it, it's a family fight, right? And I, I do think that, you know, this does offer a little bit of hope for for Democrats in the midterms, um, you know, it's 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 basically been doom and gloom with what's going to happen for the Democrats in the midterms. But if if this is any example of how things can play out, um, there there's a family squabble there. I, I, I do think that it's interesting to point out that, you know, the Republican candidates actually made it to the podium at all. Right. I think that the Republican candidates have actually not. Uh, participated in debates historically in in the the the, the recent past, and I think that uh, just even watching them there uh, it bodes uh, something interesting for for voters to watch. However, that something interesting um, can get a little bloody, obviously. Chuck, you know, I I I've, if I'm a Republican strategist, I'm praying that the only people that watched that debate last night were GOP primary voters. Uh, because that is going to sound really terrible when the general election comes along. The only reason that Governor Kemp has a political problem today is because of Purdue. Uh, he's decided to run against him. Uh, there were 950,000 primary voters in the GOP in 2020. Uh, how many of them are going to be turned enough by Purdue to defeat Kemp? Not half. I can tell you it's not going to be half. This is, there is zero chance Purdue is going to win this primary but he is going to so weaken Governor Kemp uh, and the commercials that, that I'm sure are being recorded right now in the Abrams camp to play during the general election, I think are going to cause severe damage to the GOP in Georgia. So, uh, Patricia, I do think that we don't really know how Purdue and the big lie may mobilize uh, uh, voters to turn out for him. Yes, the polls all show Brian Kemp far ahead, but I thought last night Purdue's constant reiteration of the theme, it was stolen. Brian Kemp, you didn't do anything to stop it. You know, we'll see if that mobilizes uh, Kemp's uh, 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 Purdue's people. But let me point this out and see what you think, Patricia. You know, I'm no debate expert, and I'm certainly not a political consultant. I just talk for a living. But I was a little surprised that Brian Kemp, knowing that was sure to happen, that Purdue was going to go after him, took the bait so easily and allowed the first 25 minutes of the debate to be about whether he did enough to prevent the, quote, stolen election. Kemp had an opportunity to turn this debate toward all that he would say and that Republican, many Republican voters would say is a great record in terms of what he's done for the state. But he fell right into it. He he felt like it felt like he needed to fight back. You know, I I, I certainly agree with that point and take that point. Um, the Kemp campaign and Brian Kemp believe they still have work to do with the GOP electorate when it comes to the 2020 <clears throat> election. 
when you listen to those Donald Trump rallies, he can talk about gun rights. He can talk about abortion. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when he talks about the 2020 election being stolen, that crowd of thousands erupts into this warrus mm-hmm. applause and anger. And um, that is where the energy is among the GOP activists. And they are still mad at Brian Kemp. So the Kemp campaign believes that um, of the 73% of Republicans who still believe the 2020 election was stolen, um, that he has work to do to tell them, I could not have changed the results. And by the way, the result is what it is. As governor, that was not my role. There's a constitution. I couldn't do anything about that. At the same time, they want him to look strong. Donald Trump calls him weak. Donald Trump says he was feckless. So I think they, the Kim campaign believes that he has that work to do to, to convince the hopefully 50-plus uh, GOP voters um, that, that he had no role in that. And um, if they can't convince them the election wasn't stolen, at least convince them it's not Brian Kemp's fault that it happened. Um, Renee, let's listen to what Brian Kemp said early in the debate in, in his attempt to define uh, uh, his opponent, David Perdue, as a guy who can't beat Stacey Abrams. Let's listen. I'm not going to let you call me corrupt like you let John Ossoff call you corrupt. <laughs> and your record and what you're saying is completely false. I have followed the law and the Constitution. You have a candidate that is going to attack my record, unfortunately, all night tonight, they didn't have a record of their own to beat John Ossoff in 2020. They're also lying to you about the consent decree and other things that I didn't have anything to do with. So, so Renee, uh, he, he didn't mention Abrams specifically in that bite, but that's the point. You couldn't beat Ossoff, you can't beat Abrams. He reiterated that a number of times. Well, I, I think that, that he's, he's voicing what so many other operatives out there believe, that uh, Purdue just doesn't have it against Abrams. What, what's chilling to me is hearing the anger and the betrayal in his voice when he's addressing Purdue. You know, I mean, you, you feel it, and it makes it makes people uncomfortable. You know, it's it's not um, it's not the unified Republican Party that so many are used to. We're seeing that play out. Um, to what effect it's going to play out? Through beyond this race is going to be very interesting. Um, Karen, let's listen to the big fight uh, uh, that unfolded uh, about 15 minutes or so, and let's just listen to a piece of that. When we were riding on the bus, Governor, when I was campaigning you for you, you in to, the runoff, you did not stop when the I was campaigning decree. for you, you in the runoff, the did you ever decree. ask me about having a special Governor, session? Of course I did. No, you, you lied did about not. it. And you no, lied about no, it, and it was even not. proven you by Greg Bluestein's own book. How many times was... I don't care about some reporter's book. I care about the truth. Well, I care Answer about the, the truth, question. Too, and you're lying Did you right ever now. ask me the many times I was on the bus campaigning for you? In front of Who are the witnesses? witnesses? All right. So, Karen, here's what I meant by a middle school food fight. Uh, number one, we're talking now about David Perdue's contention that Kemp could have called a special session and uh, overturned the electors, the votes for uh, Joe Biden. Uh, Kemp, of course, couldn't do that by uh, law. And now Kemp accuses him of never having raised the point. While Brian Kemp makes sure to point out, I was out there working hard to get you elected uh, back to the U.S. Senate, Karen. Oh, this is not a true debate, is it? It was a real brawl, I think. And they spoke over one another. So it was so difficult to even hear what was being discussed and how it was being explained. 
And truly, you know, to kind of go back to a point that Chuck made, which is who was watching this debate last night on a Sunday night at 7 p.m. when the beautiful weather in North Georgia yesterday, right? Like how many had gone in to see this debate? But if they did watch it, they saw two fighters. And I think that, you know, the Kemp campaign probably wanted more measured tone and they were trying to show things, but then it just gets passionate, right? If somebody's accusing you of something that you did not do or could not do, then you want to be defensive. And I think that came across. The other point about this, you know, where they were speaking over each other and then as they were getting towards the end and all this conversation, it really shows the difference in who knows the Constitution of Georgia and the power structures of what the governor can do, what the legislature can do. And I also think that, you know, Purdue showed this real fighting strength. But for six years as a senator, we really didn't see that. And we didn't see that record. So it's like a total new change in him. And, and it seems very much, and I hate to say this, manufactured from the Trump piece, right? Like, can he get back on Fox News this week? And who's going to listen to him at that point? Uh, Ch- Chuck, I have to say that Karen's point is well made. You know, who understands what the state constitution allows, whose authority is, uh, you know, appropriate for what different uh, points of law here. But that isn't what Republican voters are talking about. There Was this election stolen or not? And did Brian Kemp aid in the stealing of the election? Well, I have to tell you, I think Ronald Reagan is rolling over in his grave right now when he said, thou shalt not attack other Republicans. Um, this is, I think, a classic ploy of the Trump administration to just sort of bring, bring more attention to this race. It's a, it's a vendetta. And the Purdue is the vendetta machine uh, to try to get back at Kemp. But the reality is, you know, what, not only was there no stolen election, but Kemp does know the law. He was Secretary of State. He, and as the Abrams campaign knows, he was, knows how to use the rules. Um, and they just didn't allow him to do anything other than follow the law here. Uh, I think ultimately this, we'll see it. We're going to see the replay of this again. It's coming up the next debate. Um, but I'm just curious, is Greg Bluestein going to be in the debate next time? Does he get to add a witness <laughs> testimony to this? I think this would be hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Bluestein's book is, of course, what uh, uh, Purdue and Kemp both uh, referred to. Uh, Kemp said, I don't care about some reporter's book. Uh, so, Patricia, <laughs> a couple other points, and then let's move on. Uh, 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 Purdue pushed on two points that he's made central to his campaign beyond the stolen election lie. Uh, one, he attacked the Rivian deal once again, uh, said that Brian Kemp uh, was spending untold millions and millions of dollars uh, uh, against the interests of the people who live in that uh, those communities out there where the Rivian plant will be built. And he went after Kemp for not supporting the independence of Buckhead, the Buckhead City uh, movement. And those are themes that he's going to carry through the rest of the campaign. But here's my question, Patricia, and take it up any way you want. Did we really learn anything? Did voters learn anything last night was this debate constructive in any way that will help Republicans and then eventually Democrats think about the election? Well, I think that the debate, um, a, a real problem with that debate last night was that David Perdue advanced a number of accusations that were untrue and inaccurate. And unless you have a real-time fact checker there to rebut them, and I think that's part of what Brian Kemp was trying to do, was say, I can't let, you can't lie about this stuff. Um, that does a disservice to voters. Um, on the other hand, I'm very glad they are debating 
there was no Herschel Walker debate last night because Herschel Walker mm-hmm. turned down that debate and refused, is refusing to debate his GOP primary rivals. And I think that is a huge disservice to voters. Um, but it would be very hard last night for voters to wade through all of all of the accusations against Brian Kemp and know what was true. Um, I have to pick out one particular piece about the consent decree we keep hearing about. There was no consent decree. That is a manufactured term. There was an agreement between Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and the Democratic Party of Georgia. Brian Kemp played no role in that, and it was not called a consent decree, but it has been in Donald Trump's brain for 14 months. And so that's where this keeps coming from. And so much of what we heard from Purdue was rehashing Donald Trump's accusations about 2020 and Donald Trump's false assertions about 2020. And this really all goes back to Donald Trump lost the election, lied about it, and has now mobilized an army of, as Chuck put it, sort of like grievance volunteers to to go out and um, and exact that revenge. And that's what David Perdue has gotten himself into last night. And and that's why we have these hyper local issues that aren't really landing. Rivian, Buckhead, these are not these are not topics in a real governor's debate. The real topic is the 2020 election. Um, so, uh, uh, Karen, to, to, you know, finish up this part of our conversation, we're going to come back to it in a little while because they both talked about immigration, which we're going to get to uh, a little bit later in the show. But but for now, um, it, it did feel last night. I mean, one of the concerns Republicans have is that once the primary is over, if Kemp wins it, um, that uh, that Trump voters are going to stay home in the fall. And certainly the way Purdue pushed harder and harder on the stolen election suggests to you that the seed is really being deeply planted for um, many of those Republicans not to come back in November if their guy, Trump-backed Trump Purdue, doesn't win. Yeah, I think it's going to be a true challenge to see what Kemp, if he succeeds in the May 24th primary, what he does to pivot to turn to those voters and really talk to them to encourage them to vote. You know, interesting about the debate last night, you could hear in Purdue's voice that, you know, reminding people they did need to vote. I mean, he lost in the runoff because people didn't turn out to vote for him. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's, you know, throwing out this, you know, the election was stolen, but yet he needs mm-hmm. these people to vote. So he needs to show confidence in our voting system. And it will be tricky, I think, to see if, you know, Kemp wins, how he can take some language, language to say, but it is. We have a good system. You should turn out to vote because we can't have a Democrat win in the state. And so we need you to come back. But it will be a very tough, I think, uh, campaign for him to get those voters back. All right. There are a couple more debates. We, they debate in uh, uh, Savannah on Thursday. I think it's WTOC, if I remember correctly, Patricia. And then uh, we have a debate uh, that, that the Atlanta Press Club is producing. GPB carries the Atlanta Press Club debate. And that will be between uh, Purdue and Kemp on uh, Sunday evening at uh, 7 o'clock. You'll be able to watch it on our statewide TV uh, network. So there'll be more to talk about. It'll be interesting to see how both candidates... Uh, take what happened last night and rethink their strategies moving forward if they decide to rethink them at all. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with more on today's Political Rewind.
Samber Mustaz reminded me during the break that the uh, gubernatorial debate next Sunday night will also be on uh, GPB radio and at gpb.org. Plenty of places to watch it. We've also got uh, congressional debates. We'll talk more about those on another uh, show this week. Patricia Murphy, Chuck Cook, Karen Owen, Renee Alegria joined me for the show today. Um, uh, Patricia, uh, on Friday, we know that Marjorie Taylor Greene appeared before an administrative law judge to defend her right to stay on the Georgia ballot uh, despite a lawsuit challenging her, saying that she ran afoul of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which uh, the litigants in that case, the plaintiffs say, disqualifies her because people who were involved in some way or another in in the insurrection uh, uh, have come up against Section 3, which uh, bars people who are allegedly traitors to the country from running for re-election. So we can talk a little about that and the, and the posture that Marjorie Taylor Greene assumed in being questioned on the stand, the first member of Congress to be questioned about what she may have done to uh, aid in the insurrection. Uh, but we should also put it in the larger context. Uh, the New York Times reported over the weekend after that administrative hearing that an aide to Mark Meadows, Cassidy Hutchison, appeared before the January 6th committee and talked about a number of Republican members of Congress who worked with Mark Meadows' office to try to come up with a plan for uh, blocking the certification of the votes for Joe Biden. Among them, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and for the first time we're hearing the name Jody Heiss. All of that... Uh, just continues this theme of Republicans uh, who want to continue talking about a stolen election. Take it any way you want from there, Patricia. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's so much to unpack there. Um, But yes, you're exactly right. Uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene um, testified at length and was questioned at length about her role in January 6th on the stand, um, required uh, to uh, tell the truth under penalty of perjury. Um, and uh, but it is a it's a standard uh, that puts a very heavy burden on the plaintiff in that case to show that she did indeed participate in an attempted insurrection or give comfort to somebody who did. And that is a legal standard that is continuing to play out in the courts right now. Um, and there are still ongoing federal investigations into that as well. So that is a legal standard that really has not been resolved. And so for the administrative judge, he will come back with a recommendation to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger um, about whether or not he believes Marjorie Taylor Greene should be on the ballot. Um, but that means that it would take her off of this primary ballot coming up on May 24th. Um, I think that would be an extraordinary move and a huge legal precedent that would be challenged immediately. Um, but we'll have to see what happens. She mostly said she didn't remember a lot of the details going into it, but she did know she didn't know about the attack on the Capitol in advance and didn't participate in it. And that was sort of her her big uh, message that she wanted to leave the courtroom with. There was not evidence presented that in that moment that she actually planned it herself. And so I'm not sure if they met that standard that that is that is in there for the plaintiff. Yeah, Chuck, the judge expressed skepticism as to whether the standard had been met also. Um, and as, But as Patricia says, he'll make a recommendation. It goes to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who is the one who ultimately decides whether she should be on the ballot or not, Chuck. Do you think Brad Raffensperger will take her off the ballot before his own primary election against Jody Heiss? 
I mean, there's a lot of politics that are also going, going to go into this decision as part of this. Um, but I did, I did find it kind of entertaining. It was like watching The Godfather 2 uh, when you got Al Pacino on the stand in front of the Senate. You know, Senator, I, I don't recall. Um, she has either a terrible memory uh, of, of the things that she clearly participated in uh, or um, she lied. One of those two things happened. Uh, but, you know, it's not just her testimony the judge will consider. It's the additional evidence, including the information from the January 6th committee that I assume will be submitted as part of a briefing as part of this. This is fascinating to watch laws that are 150-plus years old play into effect today. Karen, here's what Cassidy Hutchison, a part of what her testimony was before the January 6th committee. It was released uh, to the Times. Cassidy Hutchison told the committee this, quote, they felt that he had the authority uh, to send votes back to the states or the electors. This is talking about Mike Pence, back to the states. Um, she, that they had appeared to embrace a plan promoted by the conservative lawyer, John Eastman, that members of both parties have likened to a blueprint for a coup. Ms. Hutchinson suggested the White House lawyers had found the plan was not legally sound, but that Mr. Meadows allowed it to move forward nonetheless. I think that we are, maybe we shouldn't be surprised, but it is more and more information coming out through testimonies that the congressional hearing is uncovering who was involved and what conversations were going on in the White House, which is frightening that they were trying to... Um, you know, stop the certification of our, of our process and, and go around the law. Um, I'm not sure if the panel would agree with me, but at this point with Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of our other politicians, I want to raise, you know, that Mark Twain quote about if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. I mean, if we're all telling the truth, we should be able to recall what we're doing. And we shouldn't have to have tweets and others put in front of us. Um, we should know what we've said. And I think that's what's also here is we are watching politicians who are skirting around um, instead of just really owning the truth that they've had and what they've been involved in. Renee? Yeah, I, listen, the, the mind-numbing amnesia um, of MTG is just astounding, you know. Um, but we're seeing this across the nation, not just with respect to what happened on January 6th, but by our culture, you know, by and large, no accountability, no shame in just plain denying that the truth even exists. Um, I, I think my favorite part of, of the reporting on what happened that day, though, is, that, is when it describes um, playing a clip from the 1996 movie Independence Day and asking if Green borrowed the phrase, we will not go quietly into the night, which is that famous over-the-top speech that Bill Pullman gives right before he launches an attack uh, against the alien invaders. And, I mean, you just can't make this stuff up, and and it kind of just shows how uh, how truly galactic MTG has gone. <laughs> Chuck Cook, I have to tell you that that was my favorite part of the of the entire the testimony that day. But seriously, I mean, the reality is if she does not get off the ballot, and, and I don't think Brad Raffensperger is going to take her off the ballot, uh, she's going to win that election because that's how that district is, is set up. Uh, she's got really substantial opposition from the Democratic Party, but there aren't enough Democrats in that district to reelect her. She is going back to Congress, um, despite the fact that she has a terrible memory. Okay. All right. Patricia, uh, I, it's Monday. 
So I think I kind of conflated the two different issues, the issue about what the January 6th committee learned about Jody Heiss and Marjorie Taylor Greene being part of this plan that Mark Meadows was uh, hatching to try to uh, stop the certification of the votes with the Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, testimony. So I apologize to our listeners and to all of you for sort of mixing those two things up. Um, but but let's move from uh, the uh, uh, testimony of Marjorie Taylor Greene on Friday to what we're learning about whether Jody Heiss and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene really were involved in this effort to uh, block the certification of the election. Yeah, this is a hugely important piece of information because there were just six members of Congress involved in this very tight circle planning to pressure Mike Pence to throw out and overturn the electoral votes of some states, a handful of states that voted for Joe Biden. And that includes Georgia. So we have a man running Mm -hmm. for secretary of state who was involved in a plot to throw out Georgia's electoral votes because Donald Trump lied and said the election was stolen and then whipped up so many GOP voters that there are a number of Republican officials willing to go along with that to stay in office. And so um, of, the, of the six, we have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who now has had her eligibility challenged, and Jody Heiss. And these are officials who are going to be with us possibly for some time and making decisions of great import, especially Jody Heiss, if he wins this primary and goes on to win in November, and I don't know that he would, um, he would be in charge of our electoral system, and he has participated in a plot to undermine it. Um, And that, to me, is really rather shocking information, and it's very important and very important to watch the details of this January 6th panel come out, especially where Jody Heiss is involved. And, of course, Karen, what that sets up for us is Jody Heiss, who believes in the bit, or, or at least says he believes the big lie that the election was stolen, uh, facing off against Brad Raffensperger for the Republican nomination, Raffensperger uh, being the guy who stopped Donald Trump's efforts to declare the Georgia election uh, fraudulent. Uh, you know, but the Republican base, I'm not sure they seem inclined to uh, support Raffensperger. The polls don't suggest that uh, he's doing particularly well against Heiss when it's uh, told to voters that Trump backs Heiss. Yeah, I think in this race, you know, you kind of go down the ballot and there's less salience about what people know about each candidate. But, you know, in this contest, we know who Raffensperger is because we saw him come out in 2020 and 2021 Mm. and talk about all these different investigations and what his office could do. But I think it will be interesting if Raffensperger uses this information about Heiss's involvement to, you know, stop that certification process and how damaging it can be for the state to put someone who oversees our elections and the changes that have come because of the elections and the electoral reform in charge of that office. So can he pivot and and talk about it in a way that really speaks to voters so that they understand? Or is it really just going to you know, be involvement of this is a Trump-endorsed candidate and that's what voters are going to think about and talk about? All right. Um, why don't we do this? Um, well, no, before we get to the break, let, let me take up one other issue that relates to the big lie. Uh, Patricia, we, we also learned from the New York Times uh, in the last few days that uh, Kevin McCarthy who wants to be Speaker of the House uh, if Republicans take control, and it's increasingly looking that they will after the 2022 election. 
that McCarthy had told uh, members of his own delegation uh, and says he had talked to Trump about the fact that he was fed up, he was sick of what Trump was trying to do in overturning the election results, and that he was, he'd said that it was time for Trump to resign. After that was reported, uh, Kevin McCarthy publicly said, that's a lie, I never did that, and whoops, a recording of his doing saying just that came to light. Patricia? Yes, you know, I'm not surprised uh, by the tape that's come forward with McCarthy saying that he was shocked and that Donald Trump had to go because that is the reaction of most Americans. That was the reaction after watching this incredible, horrible, disgusting scene unfold at the Capitol. And it was done moments after Donald Trump told people not to back down and to go tell uh, and go force um, members of Congress to understand that they weren't going to take this anymore. So that is a normal reaction that Kevin McCarthy had. Um, but he is at his heart, and I've covered him for many years, um, a deeply mm-hmm. political animal. And I think that as the days went on, mm-hmm. McCarthy started to see that Trump wasn't going anywhere and that the allegiance of Republican voters and even of Republicans in his own caucus was with Donald Trump and not with Kevin McCarthy. And so he did not go to Trump and say, you need to resign. Um, that would have been the thing he wanted to do and would have been the thing he should have done, I think. Um, but at his heart, he counts those votes. And if the voters feel one way, his caucus is going to feel one way. And he's not going to take a chance that he's not going to be the next speaker. And, and Renee, so what happened instead was that he became uh, uh, part of the uh, Trump coterie of people saying that uh, the election was stolen. Renee, l- let me just throw one other thing out about this. I listened to a, a discussion, one of the panel shows over the weekend, in which people talked about that McCarthy had made a smart political calculation, having, uh, having first said uh, Trump had to go because his uh, efforts overturn the election were beyond the pale. He then turned and went to Mar-a-Lago, had his picture taken with Trump, became a Trump accolade. So while that was smart politics on his part, what have we come to, Renee, in this country, when we want to say to some, that it's smart politics to uh, turn your back on an effort to overturn the results of a legitimate election. That, to me, was one of the most disturbing things I heard this weekend. Yeah, look, it, it, it's enough to jade anyone, right, with our political process and the rhetoric that is involved with running for a public office. What, what I think is incredible about the phone call, though, that it, it took place between McCarthy and Liz Cheney. Cheney has been largely condemned for sticking to her belief whereas uh, McCarthy showed that at the time he agreed with Cheney about everything that went down, then, of course, flipped, right? I think Liz Cheney, who is now a basic pariah from her own Republican Party, can teach McCarthy a few things about the courage of conviction. Um, That's for sure. I will tell you, uh, uh, Bill, that... that, uh Liz was not the only person on that call with uh, with the speaker, with the future speaker, so to speak. Uh, and now they believe that it's Elisa Stepaniak who actually released that recording, not not Liz Cheney. Uh, but what I think, what this shows you is that many Americans who are jaded about politics because they think all politicians are liars now have another piece of evidence to support their belief that all politicians are liars. Uh, and it's but that's to me the most remarkable part of this. He didn't say. He didn't remember saying it. He said he didn't say it. 
that's quite different from NTG's testimony. Uh, he just flat out lied and, and, and literally will suffer no consequence for doing so. I think that's the biggest takeaway from this is you can just lie to people and it no longer matters in American politics. That's the thing that we should be most shocked and upset about. Well, one last word on this, Patricia, before we have to get to a break, and that is Donald Trump has said, well, I still like Kevin McCarthy. I, you know, a lot of people were saying things about me that they now regret that they said. Uh, But it remains to be seen how long Donald Trump stays in the McCarthy camp. If Republicans take the majority, will he really uh, be there to support McCarthy for speaker? We really, with Donald Trump, you never know. Well, I think his exact quote was, I, I support Kevin McCarthy for now. Yes. <laughs> Very telling. All right. Let's, yeah, let's get to a break. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Uh, I said earlier we were going to do a little more about the debate because uh, we're going to talk about it in terms of immigration. There was, uh, fortunately, a, a, a reporter from Univision on the uh panel last night who asked uh, uh, Kemp first and then Trump, um, then Purdue responded, um, uh, uh, asked Kemp about his uh, position on undocumented uh, immigrants. We we know that Kemp has had a very aggressive uh, position about sending them back. We remember the pickup ad a couple of years ago. But um, let's listen to what Kemp said in response to being asked about families who could lose uh, family members if Kemp's policies were pursued. This is how we responded. I've had Latino restaurant owners tell me, you know, you saved our business by opening us back up. And so I think they have great appreciation for the conservative leadership we've had in our state. But look, we have a disaster at the border, which is why I've joined the uh, task force with a lot of other Republican governors around the country to continue to press the Biden administration. It's why I agreed to send Georgia National Guard troops to the border well over two years ago to help the Border Patrol. Walking the tightrope, Renee Allegria. You know, on one hand, saying, I think I helped the Latino business community by opening the state back up early in the pandemic, and then saying, ah, but we've got a problem with uh, undocumented immigrants at the border. Renee? Yeah, it, it, it is walking a tightrope. You know, I mean, with respect to those particular comments, um, the Latino community was really hard hit by the pandemic, right? I mean, so many of the, uh, the the percentage of deaths that occurred in in the state of Georgia happened within uh, communities of color, especially within the Hispanic community, and a, a lot of those weren't even counted uh, because of not being reported. So, you know, that's a, a terrible reality of what what occurred uh, with the pandemic. Obviously, those who have any type of businesses wanted their business open so that they can go on and move on. Um, so, yeah, he tried to have it his way and everyone's way uh, all at the same time. Uh, Chuck, uh, let's listen to David Perdue respond to that question. On his watch, we have grown the illegal community here. And I think the Hispanic community here that's hardworking, small business and all that, really want that cleaned up, too. I remember the governor, when he ran in 18, told us that, you know, I'm going to round them up, put them in my pickup truck and get them out of here. Governor, what happened? Your pickup breakdown? No, still running, still running, still working, still creating jobs, still doing something about stopping folks coming across the border. Chuck, once again, walking the, uh, that tightrope. Well, you know, it's interesting because I didn't know Georgia had physically relocated to the actual border of the United States. Um, he's so focused on the border, but 
when he talks about opening businesses there, who does he think is working in those businesses? Does he think everybody is magically documented because they own a business? No, he wants immigrants here, whether they're documented or not, to provide labor for the state. But he doesn't want to do anything about fixing their actual situations, like getting their kids in-state tuition at our colleges and universities, for example. Uh, one thing that this state was known for uh, is that we put, in the last two years of the Trump administration, more people into deportation proceedings per capita than any other state in the United States. So, in fact, the Georgia folks were actively doing that. The Biden administration has said, you know what, we now have 1.6 million cases in immigration court, over 50,000 here in Georgia in our immigration court. We have 10 judges that work on these cases. We don't have the ability to actually fix the problem at, at locally and at the border unless people like David Perdue, when he was an actual senator and could have actually fixed the laws to deal with this, would actually do something. So I, what I heard was rhetoric, complaining, insulting language. I heard not a single solution from either one of those guys. No solution. Uh, That's Karen, the plan. We, no solutions. I apologize, Chuck. Uh, Karen, we no. now know that Republicans plan on using uh, immigration against Democrats. Jim Jordan of Ohio has got a, a blueprint for how uh, to do that, talking about immigrants as if they are all criminals, drug runners, uh, bringing diseases into the country. And it just it and, and all of this comes as the White House has announced they're going to uh, uh, overturn uh, Title 42 and start allowing people seeking refugee status in to the country. And all of this goes to the fact that without comprehensive immigration reform, no matter where how you weigh in on immigration, you are going to get in trouble with one constituency or another. Yeah, this is one of those top political wedge issues. It drives voters. It drives mm conversations and rhetoric and really it has been an issue for more than 30 years right and no comprehensive reform can happen and it is at the it is sitting at the feet of congress to do something and they should be taking action but they can't because they know it excites voters it is a conversation that they can take to voters and drive out whichever party you are it's going to drive out voters for you. And that's where we stay with the immigration issue instead of fixing it and thinking about how this country was founded with immigrants, the conversation of the value that these people have and provide for our nation. We don't go into that. We just make it political because that's what drives elections and wins. Patricia? Yeah. So to demonstrate how political it is and to just wrap our entire show into one sentence, uh, Kevin McCarthy is taking a delegation, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, to the southern border today for a visit um, to have a photo op in front of the missing wall and to uh, have a photo op with Border Patrol agents. Um, now, at the same time, Democrats, including Senator Raphael Warnock, have raised a red flag with the White House to say the direction you're going with your immigration policy is hurting us in our own elections. And so while immigration continues to be tied to elections, I don't see how it's going to be tied to a solution. Chuck? You know, this is actually the big problem of the Biden administration. They initially had some excellent people working in the White House uh, on immigration issues. They have all left. The, within a year, they lost their three best minds on immigration because the immigration debate is not being controlled by the immigration experts in the White House, being controlled by Susan Rice, 
and she is basically echoing what, what was just said about politics. That the politics of immigration you can use both to drive people because they don't like immigrants or they're afraid of immigrants, and those that want more immigrants understand the value to society of having immigrants here. Um, so the White House itself has nobody but themselves to blame for the situation today, because while there are solutions on the table, uh, most of those are going to have to come from administrative efforts since Congress refused to do anything. The Trump administration was expert at this. They were expert at using administrative changes to change the law into a very negative, brutal animal. Uh, and the Biden administration has not changed hardly any of those 1,100 changes that the Trump administration made. And as a result, you have angry activists, you have angry people on both sides of the aisle. When we really could fix this bill, this is fixable. Um, meanwhile, Renee, we're, we're short on time. But what, what, Warnock, it, what you see with Warnock is that um, Democrats are in a tough position here. The Latino vote seems to be in play this cycle. When Warnock criticized the president over Title 42, <clears throat> Latino groups in the state really came after him and said, you, come on, you've got to support um, people being able to take refuge in the United States. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens to the Latino vote moving forward this year. For sure. Listen, two-thirds of Latinos uh, voted for Warnock uh, during the runoff. Sixty percent more Hispanics registered to vote in 2020 versus 2016, um, from 106K to 170,000 registered voters and climbing. So anyone who wants to get elected statewide needs to address the needs and concerns of the Hispanic community. They need to have a stance. They need to stick with it, and they need to like sell that to the Hispanic uh, voter. Uh, folks aren't as educated about the Georgia Hispanic as they need to be. Um, they need to do their homework. They need to engage, uh, and so it's going to be a very interesting road from now until November and beyond. All right, um, that's it. We are completely out of time for today's show. Renee Alegria, Karen Owen, Chuck Cook, Patricia Murphy, thank you so much for the conversation. It, I, I hope We covered a lot of ground, and I will say that for my part, I hope I kept things organized enough that we made some sense out of all these really crucial issues uh, that we took up on today's show. One last note before we leave you. Today's the final day that you can register uh, to vote in the May 24th election. If you don't know whether you're registered or not, we have a link at the gpb.org uh, website where you can go and look at the uh, My Voter page on the Secretary of State's website. It's easy. Just plug in uh, your basic information, and it'll let you know whether you're registered or not. So that's it for us uh, for today. We're back, of course, with another show uh, tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, everybody, and stay healthy out there. Bye-bye.